Section twenty one of the Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Volume One, The Case of Laker Absconded by Arthur Morrison, Part Two. To resume at the point where, for the time, I lost sight of the matter. Hewitt left by the back way and stopped an empty cab as it passed. Abney Park Cemetery was his direction to the driver. In a little more than twenty minutes, the cab was branching off down Essex Road on its way to Stoke Newington, and in twenty minutes more, Hewitt stopped it in Church Street, Stoke Newington. He walked through a street or two, and then down another, the houses of which he scanned carefully as he passed. Opposite one, which stood by itself, he stopped, and making a pretense of consulting and arranging his large pocket-book, he took a good look at the house. It was rather larger, neater, and more pretentious than the others in the street, and it had a natty little coach-house, just visible up the side entrance. There were red blinds hung with heavy lace in the front windows, and behind one of these blinds Hewitt was able to catch the glint of a heavy gas chandelier. He stepped briskly up the front steps, and knocked sharply at the door. "'Mr. Merston,' he asked, pocket-book in hand, when a neat parlour-maid opened the door. "'Yes?' "'Ah!' Hewitt stepped into the hall and pulled off his hat. "'It's only the meter. There's been a deal of gas running away somewhere here, and I'm just looking to see if the meters are right. Where is it?' The girl hesitated. "'I'll—I'll I'll ask Master,' she said. "'Very well.' I don't want to take it away, you know, only to give it a tap or two, and so on. The girl retired to the back of the hall, and without taking her eyes off Martin Hewitt, gave his message to some invisible person in a back room, whence came a growling reply of, All right. Hewitt followed the girl to the basement, apparently looking straight before him, but in reality taking in every detail of the place. The gas meter was in a very large lumber cupboard under the kitchen stairs. The girl opened the door and lit a candle. The meter stood on the floor, which was littered with hampers and boxes and odd sheets of brown paper. But a thing that at once arrested Hewitt's attention was a garment of some sort of bright blue cloth with large brass buttons, which was lying in a tumbled heap in a corner and appeared to be the only thing in the place that was not covered with dust. Nevertheless, Hewitt took no apparent notice of it, but stooped down and solemnly tapped the meter three times with his pencil, and listened with great gravity, placing his ear to the top. Then he shook his head and tapped again. At length, he said, It's a bit doubtful. I'll just get you to light the gas in the kitchen a moment. Keep your hand to the burner, and when I call out, shut it off at once, see? The girl turned and entered the kitchen, and Hewitt immediately seized the blue coat, for a coat it was. It had a dull red piping in the seams, and was of the swallowtail pattern, livery coat, in fact. He held it for a moment before him, examining its pattern and color, and then rolled it up and flung it again into the corner. Right, he called to the servant. Shut off! The girl emerged from the kitchen as he left the cupboard. Well, she asked, are you satisfied now? 
Quite satisfied, thank you, Hewitt replied. Is it all right, she continued, jerking her hand toward the cupboard? Well, no, it isn't. There's something wrong there, and I'm glad I came. You can tell Mr. Merston, if you like, that I expect his gas bill will be a good deal less next quarter. And there was a suspicion of a chuckle in Hewitt's voice as he crossed the hall to leave, for a gas inspector is pleased when he finds, at length, what he has been searching for. Things had fallen out better than Hewitt had dared to expect. He saw the key of the whole mystery in that blue coat, for it was the uniform coat of the hall porters at one of the banks that he had visited in the morning, though which one he could not for the moment remember. He entered the nearest post office and dispatched a telegram to Plummer, giving certain directions and asking the inspector to meet him. Then he hailed the first available cab and hurried toward the city. At Lombard Street he alighted and looked in at the door of each bank till he came to Buller, Clayton, Lads, and Companies. This was the bank he wanted. In the other banks, the hall porters wore mulberry coats, brick dust coats, brown coats, and what not. But here, behind the ladders and scaffold poles, which obscured the entrance, he could see a man in a blue coat, with dull red piping and brass buttons. He sprang up the steps, pushed open the inner swing door, and finally satisfied himself by a closer view of the coat, to the wearer's astonishment. Then he regained the pavement, and walked up the whole length of the bank premises in front. Afterwards, turning up the paved passage at the side, deep in thought, the bank had no windows or doors on the side next to the court, and the two adjoining houses were old and supported in place by wooden shores. Both were empty, and a great board announced that tenders would be received in a month's time for the purchase of the old materials of which they were constructed, also that some part of the site would be let on a long building lease. Hewitt looked up at the grimy fronts of the old buildings. The windows were crusted thick with dirt, all except the bottom window of the house nearer the bank, which was fairly clean and seemed to have been quite lately washed. The door, too, of this house was cleaner than that of the other, though the paint was worn. Hewitt reached and fingered a hook driven into the left-hand doorpost, about six feet from the ground. It was new and not at all rusted. Also, a tiny splinter had been displaced when the hook was driven in and clean wood showed at the spot. Having observed these things, Hewitt stepped back and read at the bottom of the big board the name Windsor and Weeks, Surveyors and Auctioneers, Abchurch Lane. Then he stepped into Lombard Street. Two hansoms pulled up near the post office, and out of the first stepped Inspector Plummer and another man. This man, and the two who alighted from the second hansom, were unmistakably plain-clothes constables. Their air, gait, and boots proclaimed it. "'What's all this?' demanded Plummer, as Hewitt approached. "'You'll soon see, I think. But first, have you put the watch on number 197 Hackworth Road?' "'Yes. Nobody will get away from there alone.' "'Very good. I am going to Abchurch Lane for a few minutes. Leave your men out here, but just go round into that court by Buller, Clayton, and Lads.' and keep your eye on the first door on the left. I think we'll find something soon. Did you get rid of Miss Shaw? No, she's behind now, and Mrs. Laker's with her. They met in the Strand and came after us in another cab. Rare fun, eh? 
they think we're pretty green it's quite handy too so long as they keep behind me it saves all the trouble of watching them and inspector Plummer chuckled and winked very good you don't mind keeping your eye on that door do you i'll be back very soon and with that hewitt turned off into abchurch lane at windsor and weeks information was not difficult to obtain the houses were destined to come down very shortly but a week or so ago an office and a cellar in one of them was let temporarily to a mr westley he brought no references indeed as he paid a fortnight's rent in advance he was not asked for any considering the circumstances of the case he was opening a london branch for a large firm of cider merchants he said and just wanted a rough office and a cool cellar to store samples in for a few weeks till the permanent premises were ready there was another key and no doubt the premises might be entered if there were any special need for such a course martin hewitt gave such excellent reasons that windsor and weeks's managing clerk immediately produced the key and accompanied hewitt to the spot i think you'd better have your men handy hewitt remarked to Plummer when they reached the door and a whistle quickly brought the men over the key was inserted in the lock and turned but the door would not open the bolt was fastened at the bottom hewitt stooped and looked under the door it's a drop bolt he said probably the man who left last let it fall loose and then banged the door so that it fell into its place i must try my best with a wire or a piece of string a wire was brought and with some maneuvering hewitt contrived to pass it round the bolt and lift it little by little steadying it with the blade of a pocket-knife when at last the bolt was raised out of the hole the knife-blade was slipped under it and the door swung open they entered the door of the little office just inside stood open but in the office there was nothing except a board a couple of feet long in a corner hewitt stepped across and lifted this turning it downward face toward Plummer. on it in fresh white paint on a black ground were painted the words buller clayton lads and company temporary entrance hewitt turned to windsor and weeks's clerk and asked the man who took this room called himself westley didn't he yes youngish man clean-shaven and well-dressed yes he was i fancy hewitt said turning to Plummer, i fancy an old friend of yours is in this mr sam gunter what the hoxton yob i think it's possible he's been mr westley for a bit and somebody else for another bit but let's come to the cellar windsor and weeks clerk led the way down a steep flight of steps into a dark underground corridor wherein they lighted their way with many successive matches soon the cellar corridor made a turn to the right and as the party passed the turn there came from the end of the passage before them a fearful yell help help open the door i'm going mad mad oh my god and there was a sound of desperate beating from the inside of the cellar door at the extreme end the men stopped startled come said hewitt more matches and he rushed to the door it was fastened with a bar and padlock let me out for god's sake came the voice sick and hoarse from the inside let me out all right hewitt shouted we have come for you wait a moment the voice sank into a sort of sobbing croon and hewitt tried several keys from his own bunch on the padlock none fitted 
he drew from his pocket the wire he had used for the bolt of the front door straightened it out and made a sharp bend at the end hold the match close he ordered shortly and one of the men obeyed three or four attempts were necessary and several different bendings of the wire were effected but in the end hewitt picked the lock and flung open the door from within a ghastly figure fell forward among them fainting and knocked out the matches hello cried plummer hold up who are you let's get him up into the open said hewitt he can't tell you who he is for a bit but i believe he's laker laker what here i think so steady up the steps don't bump him he's pretty sore already i expect truly the man was a pitiable sight his hair and face were caked in dust and blood and his fingernails were torn and bleeding water was sent for at once and brandy well said plummer hazily looking first at the unconscious prisoner and then at hewitt but what about the swag you'll have to find that yourself hewitt replied i think my share of the case is about finished i only act for the guarantee society you know and if lakers proved innocent innocent how well this is what took place as near as i can figure it you'd better undo his collar i think this to the men what i believe has happened is this there has been a very clever and carefully prepared conspiracy here and laker has not been the criminal but the victim been robbed himself you mean but how where yesterday morning before he had been to more than three banks here in fact but then how you're all wrong we know he made the whole round and did all the collection and then palmer's office and all and the umbrella why the man still lay unconscious don't raise his head you it said and one of you had best fetch a doctor he's had a terrible shock then turning to plumber he went on as to how they manage the job i'll tell you what i think first it struck some very clever person that a deal of money might be got by robbing a walk clerk from a bank this clever person was one of a clever gang of thieves perhaps the hoxton row gang as i think i hinted now you know quite as well as i do that such a gang will spend any amount of time over a job that promises a big haul and that for such a job they can always command the necessary capital there are many most respectable persons living in good style in the suburbs whose chief business lies in financing such ventures and taking the chief share of the proceeds well this is their plan carefully and intelligently carried out they watch laker observe the round he takes and his habits they find that there is only one of the clerks with whom he does business that he is much acquainted with and that this clerk is in a bank which is commonly second in laker's round the sharpest man among them and i don't think there's a man in london could do this as well as young sam gunter studies laker's dress and habits just as an actor studies a character they take this office and cellar as we have seen because it is next door to a bank whose front entrance is being altered a fact which laker must know from his daily visits the smart man gunter let us say and i have other reasons for believing it to be he makes up precisely like laker false moustache dress and everything and waits here with the rest of the gang one of the gang is dressed in a blue coat with brass buttons like a hall porter in buller's bank do you see 
Yes, I think so. It's pretty clear now. A confederate watches at the top of the court, and the moment Laker turns in from Cornhill, having already been, mind, at the only bank where he was so well known that the disguised thief would not have passed muster, as soon as he turns in from Cornhill, I say, a signal is given. And that board, pointing to that with the white letters, is hung on the hook in the doorpost. The sham porter stands beside it, and as Laker approaches, says, This way in, sir, this morning. The front way is shut for the alterations. Laker, suspecting nothing, and supposing that the firm had made a temporary entrance through the empty house, enters. He is seized when well along the corridor. The board is taken down and the door shut. Probably he is stunned by a blow on the head. See the blood now. They take his wallet and all the cash he has already collected. Gunter takes the wallet and also the umbrella, since it has Laker's initials, and is therefore distinctive. He simply completes the walk in the character of Laker, beginning with Buller, Clayton, and Lads, just round the corner. It is nothing but routine work, which is quickly done, and nobody notices him particularly. It is the bills they examine. Meanwhile, this unfortunate fellow is locked up in the cellar here, right at the end of the underground corridor where he can never make himself heard in the street, and where next him are only the empty cellars of the deserted house next door. The thieves shut the front door and vanish. The rest is plain. Gunter, having completed the round and bagged some 15,000 pounds or more, spends a few pounds in a tourist ticket at Palmer's as a blind, being careful to give Laker's name. He leaves the umbrella at Charing Cross in a conspicuous place, right opposite the lost property office where it is sure to be seen and so completes his false trail then who are the people at one ninety seven hackworth road the capitalist lives there the financier and probably the directing spirit of the whole thing merston's the name he goes by there and i've no doubt he cuts a very imposing figure in chapel every sunday he'll be worth picking up this isn't the first thing he's been in i'll warrant but but what about laker's mother and miss shaw well why the poor women are nearly out of their minds with terror and shame that's all but though they may think laker a criminal they'll never desert him they've been following us about with a feeble vague sort of hope of being able to baffle us in some way or help him if we caught him or something poor things did you ever hear of a real woman who desert a son or a lover merely because he was a criminal but here's the doctor. When he's attended to him, will you let your men take Laker home? I must hurry and report to the Guarantee Society, I think. But, said the perplexed plumber, where did you get your clue? You must have had a tip from someone. You know, you can't have done it by clairvoyance. What gave you the tip? The Daily Chronicle. The what? The Daily Chronicle. Just take a look at the agony column in yesterday morning's issue and read the message to Yob, to Gunter, in fact. That's all. By this time, a cab was waiting in Lombard Street, and two of Plummer's men, under the doctor's directions, carried Laker to it. No sooner, however, were they in the court than two watching women threw themselves hysterically upon Laker, and it was long before they could be persuaded that he was not being taken to jail. The mother shrieked aloud, My boy, my boy, don't take him. Oh, don't take him. They've killed my boy. 
look at his head oh his head and wrestled desperately with the men while hewitt attempted to soothe her and promised to allow her to go in the cab with her son if she would only be quiet the younger woman made no noise but she held one of laker's limp hands in both hers hewitt and i dined together that evening and he gave me a full account of the occurrences which i have here set down still when he was finished i was not able to see clearly by what process of reasoning he had arrived at the conclusions that gave him the key to the mystery nor did i understand the agony column message and i said so in the beginning he would explain the thing that struck me as curious was the fact that laker was said to have given his own name at palmer's in buying his ticket now the first thing the greenest and newest criminal thinks of is changing his name so that the giving of his own name seemed unlikely to begin with still he might have made such a mistake as plummer suggested when he said that criminals usually make a mistake somewhere as they do in fact still it was the least likely mistake i could think of especially as he actually didn't wait to be asked for his name but blurted it out when it wasn't really wanted and it was conjoined with another rather curious mistake or what would have been a mistake if the thief were laker why should he conspicuously display his wallet such a distinctive article for the clerk to see and note why rather had he not got rid of it before showing himself suppose it should be somebody personating laker in any case i determined not to be prejudiced by what i had heard of laker's betting a man may bet without being a thief but again supposing it were laker might he not have given his name and displayed his wallet and so on while buying a ticket for france in order to draw pursuit after himself in that direction while he made off in another in another name and disguised each supposition was plausible and in either case it might happen that whoever was laying his trail would probably lay it a little farther charing cross was the next point and there i went i already had it from plummer that laker had not been recognized there perhaps the trail had been laid in some other manner something left behind with laker's name on it perhaps i at once thought of the umbrella with his monogram and making a long shot asked for it at the lost property office as you know the guess was lucky in the umbrella as you know i found the scrap of paper that i judged had fallen in from the hand of the man carrying the umbrella he had torn the paper in half in order to fling it away and one piece had fallen into the loosely flapping umbrella it is a thing that will often happen with an omnibus ticket as you may have noticed also it was proved that the umbrella was unrolled when found and rolled immediately after so here was a piece of paper dropped by the person who had brought the umbrella to charing cross and left it i got the whole advertisement as you remember and i studied it yob is back slang for boy and is often used in nicknames to denote a young smooth-faced thief gunter the man i suspect as a matter of fact is known as the hoxton yob the message then was addressed to someone known by such a nickname next h r shop roast now in thieves slang to roast a thing or a person is to watch it or him they call any place a shop notably a thieves den so that this meant that some resort perhaps the hoxton row shop was watched you first then to-night 
would be clearer, perhaps, when the rest was understood. I thought a little over the rest, and it struck me that it must be a direction to some other house, since one was warned of as being watched. Besides, there was the number, 197, and Red BL, which would be extremely likely to mean Red Blinds, by way of clearly distinguishing the house. And then the plan of the thing was plain. You have noticed, probably, that the map of London which accompanies the post office directory is divided, for convenience of reference, into numbered squares. Yes, the squares are denoted by letters along the top margin and figures down the side, so that if you consult the directory and find a place marked as being in D5, for instance, you find vertical division D and run your finger down it till it intersects horizontal division 5, and there you are. Precisely. I got my post office directory and looked for O2. It was in North London, and took in parts of Abney Park Cemetery and Clissold Park. Second top was the next sign. Very well. I counted the second street intersecting the top of the square, counting in the usual way from the left. That was Lordship Road, then third L from the point where Lordship Road crossed the top of the square. I ran my finger down the road until it came to third L, or in other words, the third turning on the left, Hackworth Road. So there we were, unless my guesses were altogether wrong. Straight Mon probably meant straight moniker, that is to say, the proper name, a thief's real name, in contradistinction to that he may assume. I turned over the directory till I found Hackworth Road, and found that number 197 was inhabited by a Mr. Merston. From the whole thing, I judged this. There was to have been a meeting at the H.R. shop, but that was found, at the last moment, to be watched by the police for some purpose, so that another appointment was made for this house in the suburbs. You first, then tonight, the person addressed was to come first, and the others in the evening. They were to ask for the householder's straight moniker, Mr. Merston, and they were to come one at a time. Now then, what was this? What theory would fit it? Suppose this were a robbery, directed from afar by the advertiser. Suppose, on the day before the robbery, it was found that the place fixed for division of spoils were watched. Suppose that the principal thereupon advertised, as had already been agreed in case of emergency, in these terms. The principal in the actual robbery, the Yob addressed, was to go first with the booty. The others were to come after, one at a time. Anyway, the thing was good enough to follow a little further, and I determined to try number 197 Hackworth Road. I have told you what I found there and how it opened my eyes. I went, of course, merely on chance to see what I might chance to see, but luck favored, and I happened on that coat brought back rolled up on the evening after the robbery, doubtless by the thief who had used it, and flung carelessly into the handiest cupboard. That was this gang's mistake. Well, I congratulate you, I said. I hope they'll catch the rascals. I rather think they will, now they know where to look. They can scarcely miss Merston, anyway. There has been very little to go on in this case, but I stuck to the thread however slight, and it brought me through. The rest of the case, of course, is plumbers. 
it was a peculiarity of my commission that i could equally well fulfil it by catching the man with all the plunder or by proving him innocent having done the latter my work was at an end but i left it where plummer will be able to finish the job handsomely plummer did sam gunter merston and one accomplice were taken the first and last were well known to the police and were identified by laker merston as hewitt had suspected had kept the lion's share for himself so that altogether with what was recovered from him and the other two nearly eleven thousand pounds was saved for messrs little neil and little merston when taken was in the act of packing up to take a holiday abroad and there cash's notes which were found neatly packed in separate thousands in his portmanteau as hewitt had predicted his gas bill was considerably less next quarter for less than halfway through it he began a term in jail as for laker he was reinstated of course with an increase of salary by way of compensation for his broken head he had passed a terrible twenty-six hours in the cellar unfed and unheard several times he had become insensible and again and again he had thrown himself madly against the door shouting and tearing at it till he fell back exhausted with broken nails and bleeding fingers for some hours before the arrival of his rescuers he had been sitting in a sort of stupor from which he was suddenly aroused by the sound of voices and footsteps he was in bed for a week and required a rest of a month in addition before he could resume his duties then he was quietly lectured by mr neal as to betting and i believe dropped that practice in consequence i am told that he is at the counter now a considerable promotion end of part two and end of the case of laker absconded by arthur morrison